0: I like your new glasses. Thank you. They're made out of acetate what material.
1: That? What is that?
0: Uh, you know. Uh, stalling, stalling, stalling. Definition of acetate on Google. Oh, you know, it's a salter ester. <laughs> crap! It's a it's uh containing. The Anion CH3 COO, or the group OCCH3. Okay. Um, (laughs) So it's a really cool kind of glasses. It's a cellulose acetate. Dang it, Google, you can't define... Okay, listen. It's made out of fibers. (laughs) (laughs) I just bought them. I don't know what they are. I'm having an identity crisis.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We'll never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious.
0: Hello and welcome to episode thirteen of Beltway Banthas, a Star Wars podcast based in the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington D.C. I'm your host, Tirso, and tonight, we shall have order, as we discuss Masa Meta and how his role in the Star Wars universe can help us make sense of our very own politicians. We'll be joined later by fellow Star Wars podcaster, Mike DeRose, but before we get to that,
1: I'm joined by our co-host, Steven. Hey, Tierso. What can you tell us about what has been going on in the past couple of weeks? Well, for one, I was pretty excited to see that our very own Mark Hamill has taken the power of the force to the California legislature. Did you see this thing that he did with the uh, the bill to fight autograph forgery? I did not. Tell me about it. Yeah, so there was a bill in the California legislature, uh, Bill 1570. It was put forward by um, Representative Ling Ling Chang. And it wasn't exactly something that had people divided, um, but it was a bill to... Um, put harder penalties on the forgery of autographs and memorabilia. So this had the actual support and um, vocal endorsement of Mark Hamill himself. So he delivered a little bit of uh, the force to California, which I just thought was kind of cool on a geeky politics level. And, um, you know, we just talked about last week, you know, uh, Harrison Ford's involvement in politics through his, uh, his personal activism and, um, Mark Hamill has a tendency to jump into a couple different debates as well and throw his weight around. Yeah, he's very vocal about
0: his political opinions and tends to be pretty involved, uh, not as much as our friend Harrison Ford, but it is interesting to see him be involved in such a way.
1: It's always nice when, I mean, it's really not like much of a political argument. It's just, hey, should we have tougher penalties on fake autographs, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which, I mean, is just incredibly horrible to consumers. Um, And it protects fans if you can put stiffer penalties on these sorts of things. Yeah. What can you tell us in ways of Star Wars movie news? So I found out the other day uh, we will no longer be receiving the musical stylings of Alexander Desplat on Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. Um, He is not going to be completing that piece. And so the work has been given over to Michael uh, Giacchino. Um, another guy whose name we can't pronounce. It is going to be another tough one to uh, to stick the landing on. Uh, <laughs> it, it seems to be Italian. So G-Chi- Giacchino? G- uh, GiaPet? You have to say it like in Italian. You have to say, eh, uh, uh, Michael uh, uh, Giacchino. Michael Giacchino. Yeah. Yes. Got it. Um, <laughs> so this is the guy he's been behind. He's been behind films like Star Trek and um, Pixar movies like Incredibles and Inside Out. Um, so we were just reading fan mail the other week about why we should be excited about um, Desplat uh, scoring the movie. And mm-hmm. so apparently he will no longer be on. This has to do with the reshoots. Uh, there are lots of things that the reshoots were and were not. It was not a complete redo of the movie um, or a complete uh, watering down of it, but it did changed the scheduling of how the movie was going to be produced and so it did not end up working with the schedule um for other pieces that he was going to be working on this year so i think just according to uh to lucasfilm and disney he was not able to do the film because of scheduling he left as soon as he arrived that's all right though we'll take another we hardly knew you we
0: hardly knew you (laughs) desplet
1: what else do we got in ways of star wars news star wars season three of rebels Um, is coming exactly one week from today. So, I guess when folks are listening to this, it'll just be about three days out. I'm pretty excited. Have you even caught up on Rebels at this point? Nope. Nope? Why haven't you started watching? I don't have Disney XD. You don't have Disney XD? Isn't (laughs) it just a normal channel?
0: I don't even have TV. I have Netflix. You
1: don't have cable?
0: No, I haven't had cable since, like, 97. This is, like, a real real situation. (laughs) I haven't had cable for a long time. Well...
1: (laughs) I would say that this is pretty true of millennials. Millennials are unplugging, but I, it's your grandma. I've been ripping on the-, the
0: internet. I, I usually wait for. <laughs> this is getting to real. I I wait for uh, TV shows to get pirated on the internet, and then I watch them.
1: Do you need me to get you the DVD set? I'll, I'll get it for you. Like, sure. A, a gift.
0: You didn't get me a birthday present, so I guess, yeah. Ah, that's true. <laughs> I actually do like, I like like hard copies of things, but anyways, so that pretty much is all we have for Star Wars movie news. Um, That's going to bring us to our main topic for today, where we're going to be talking about Moss Amida? Amada?
1: Amida, Amada, Amida,
0: Amada, let's call the whole thing off. How about we call off you doing that impression forever?
1: You have a better one? (laughs) You have a better Louis Armstrong impression? <laughs> Amita Amada, Let's, let's call, call the, the whole thing off, off. That, that was great Yay yeah. yeah. okay. right. So just a quick disclaimer to listeners There's going to be a whole lot of Going back and forth with I think how everyone Wants to pronounce his name He is the big blue guy The one horny politician oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> The big horny politician on the blue pill
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> You're fired. Oh, my God. Oh, I can't. I can't do this shit. I quit. I'm done. I'm doing a Stranger Things podcast from now on. Okay. No, um, I, I promise that I will not pronounce his name the same way twice throughout the entirety of this podcast. You most definitely will. I will or will not? Will. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, technically quote-unquote we will probably be discussing a few quote-unquote spoilers for a uh, new canon material because we'll be diving into a few of the new books and things like that so we are going to put up the spoiler alarm just in case some of you haven't read aftermath life dead or tarkin so we are doing <clears throat> a little spoiler alert just in case some of you haven't read those but so without further ado that's going to transition us to our main topic for today <sighs> So, Stephen, what can you tell us about Masameda? You mean Masameda? Masamada? Masamoto. Sure. Mm. <laughs> what can you tell us about this character for those
1: that maybe don't even know what he looks like or who he even is? Yeah, so Masameda is a Shagreen male hailing from the planet of Champala. Um, he rose through the ranks, uh, through the Republic, and then lasted uh, politically until the end of the Empire. Um, and beyond. And he's just a guy who has loomed in the background, um, but he's loomed large. And I think something that's always been interesting to me uh, in politics is the idea of who really wields power. Is it politicians? Is it their donors? Is it the people who are in the bureaucracy? Is it the staff? I mean, one thing that you hear a whole lot in legislatures and on the Hill is uh, that politicians come and go, but the staff always remains, and those are the people with institutional knowledge who really make things actually work um, and keep the uh, the what it was they say the boats running on time, the trains running on time, whatever the transportation. planes landing on time, unicycle, um, all of these things that have to run on time. <laughs> staff actually do, and I mean. Masamita seems like a guy who's part of the machine. He's part of the bureaucracy, and he knows it inside and out. And we have in in pop culture this romantic and 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 very powerful obsession with um, presidential chiefs of staff. I think just as a person who grew up loving The West Wing, um, just a, yeah, a fictional a fictional character that has just always been so cool to me is Leo McGarry, mm-hmm. um, the really stalwart supporter and, and, and close advisor uh, to President Bartlett in the West Wing. And this was a guy who lasted through most of the entire show until the role was taken over by C.J. Craig. Um, but these guys and gals are folks who really run political offices They are the gatekeepers. If you want something, you might have to go through them first. Very, very unlikely you'll get meetings. Um, And we'll just, we'll talk about the president in particular, a meeting with the president unless his chief of staff knows about it. Um, And chiefs of staff, they, they know the landscape politically and it is part of their job and it has changed over the course of a couple of decades um, what exactly they do. But I mean, they have an incredibly uh, important role in the legislative process um, the role is really an executive assistant role to the president or to the executive, um, and they coordinate with all of the White House staff, the economic advisors, the national security teams, the Office of the Management and Budget, and they also work on legislative affairs. So Obama, for example, he has had four or five chiefs of staff um, in his tenure, which is a lot of. Um, average is three for like a two term president. Mm -hmm. Uh, George W. Bush had two. Reagan had three. Obama's going on five. But his first chief of staff is really the most important one, I think. It was Rahm Emanuel. And this was a guy, um, a Chicago cutthroat political operative. He's now the mayor of Chicago. But he helped muscle through the Affordable Care Act, his entire role. Um, And I think the reason that he was chosen as chief of staff was to make sure that that could happen. And Obama has had different chiefs of staff when he had different periods of priority. Um, He brought on Jack Daly when he really needed to get the economy back on the right track and work with business leaders because Jack Daly had a close relationship um, with the business community. And then he moved on to John Liu when he wanted to change um, economic priorities. And you, you just see presidents put their entire agenda on the shoulders of a chief of staff and we're going to talk a little bit later about Doug Stamper and House of Cards but i mean these are guys who are are charged with making sure that the agenda of their boss passes and Masamita is clearly in that very similar situation where he is positioned to make sure that when they want to acquire emergency powers and they want to go for the uh, the empire rather than the republic I mean, he has an instrumental role in making sure that those um, pieces are in the right place. It's not just Palpatine who's working all this by himself. Wonderful. So to help us dive more in depth into the character of Masamita,
0: we have the pleasure of welcoming our friend and fellow Star Wars podcaster, Mike DeRose. Mike, thank you so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me on.
0: So before we start talking about Masamita, tell us a little bit about you, Mike, like things that you do and things that you produce, like, what what can we know about you and your Star Wars fandom?
2: Oh, when it comes to my Star Wars fandom, I, um, I have a podcast that actually is the same title as the weekly column I have on makingstarwars.net, it's called You Seek Knowledge, it's on SoundCloud and iTunes at the moment, I'm working on getting it on other places, I also have a side project, it's under the same name that I have on Twitter, Live the Force, and that's actually going to be original radio dramas with stuff I'm writing, I'm editing music, sound cues, and sound effects and stuff like that so that's it takes a little longer to you know put those together but that's definitely my uh, passion side project
1: and then the podcast the you seek knowledge is where you can probably hear me more frequently. That's a lot of work in the uh, in the audio uh, audio and editing world. Do you have some sort of background in tech or audio?
2: Um, none. None
1: whatsoever. Wow. Just all self-taught. So I, I started doing this a little less than a month ago. I just downloaded programs, got a
2: lot of googling in found the uh, free provided side effects by com, and Really, just played and played and played until I kind of put something together.
1: I love it. Well, Mike, I I really enjoyed your uh, your first pilot episode for You Seek Knowledge. I thought it was uh, it was candid. It had heart, and it was really just a a good testament to. You know, fans doing what fans do, which is just delve into some of the smaller details of Star Wars. You know, Amida. and I'm going to go the Amida route. Is kind of how I've always pronounced it, but uh, I mean, he's definitely Masamida. <laughs> he's definitely one of those really interesting characters that just kind of looms in the background, but we know now that he really looms large.
2: Yeah, he he really does um, do a lot that you know we don't see him actually do. But when you kind of look at the pieces of the puzzle. The most telling one is the fact that he's still you know, the Vice Chancellor between Episode 1 and 2 when there really would be no reason for Palpatine to carry over anybody from Valorum's failed you know, group of uh, politician friends. So the fact that he still managed to keep that same level of power is kind of that first major clue that he's been in on it to some degree and that as the story unfolds you kind of <clears throat> realize he's been on in on Palpatine's plan almost from maybe not the beginning beginning but from very early on and he's kept his power by making sure the right person got into
1: power i mean but he's a, he's a scary guy he's got these beady eyes that are kind of like grayish and yellow i mean really he fits right in there with uh with a dark sider for a boss but i mean like you were saying he's a guy who's managed to stick around and, and maintain a role of power throughout the uh, different phases of the republic i do you know mike if he had a senatorial career before being vice chair or was he as, serving as vice chair while being a senator from his home world.
2: Nothing in the canon that tells us one way or the other, but, I mean, if we kind of look at the way Palpatine rose to power, we saw that he was a senator first, and then he's moved up to being, you know, the supreme chancellor. So, if you have to assume, I would assume he did serve as a regular <clears throat> senator and then made the right political allies, uh, especially with Valorum, you know, he was friends with him, probably ran together. If It used to be a more typical running process, not, you know, emergency powers or vote of no confidence type of thing. So I would assume that he probably was a senator.
1: Yeah, I would imagine that as well. I mean, kind of like you have majority leaders and whips in the actual Congress. You have these, you know, individuals in Congress who represent their districts or, you know, their states, but they then they take on additional leadership roles as well as representing a world. Um, So I I think it's pretty safe to assume that he actually is a representative from Shampala and he's taken up a leadership role in the Senate as being Mr. Order. We will have order. (laughs)
2: Yeah, that's uh, it's funny how that's pretty much his most memorable line. And also the, uh, if only Senator, I were here. <laughs> that's it. I think he's got like three lines total in all the films. And so people just kind of dismiss him.
1: Well, you mentioned it in passing. So before we move on to kind of episode two and his quick rise along Palpatine's side, you had mentioned his working for Valorum and being part of that leadership team. It's It seems pretty clear to all of us that he was working with Palpatine. Um, to make sure that he was part of the next transition. I mean, do you think that he played a key role on the Senate floor in making that vote go Palpatine's way?
2: I'm, if I had to, you know, like I said, since we didn't see much of that uh, prob- those problems beforehand, I would say that he definitely was going around talking to the right people. When uh, If Valoran would trust him to be like, hey, listen, I'm busy dealing with Trade Federation stuff. Can you go deal with this fire? yeah, sure, no problem. But then in the meantime, it's like, mm, you know, I'm here to do this. But I don't know if you've noticed, but Chancellor Valorum doesn't really have his act together. So when the time comes, we might need to make sure the right person gets in there. Valorum would assume he's working working on his behalf when more than likely without, obviously, he wouldn't know that he's working with Palpatine. They're kind of planning those seeds of we need to get somebody stronger into power. He probably wouldn't even go as far to say, oh, you know, I've got this buddy, Palpatine. He, uh, would be a good replacement he would just be kind of planning the doubt that even the people closest to the chancellor don't really trust in his abilities so when they call for that vote of no confidence mm-hmm. no one's going to kind of be like whoa whoa whoa, slow down that's crazy everybody's already kind of thinking along those lines of yeah i don't really trust this guy either he can't you know rein in the politics even the simple stuff so why should we trust him to run the galaxy the big moment in episode two is when you know obviously amadol is on the run from the trade federation and they believe chango fed but you know he's not actively chasing them anymore anyway yeah. <laughs> it's just that threat of uh, action against her which has them hiding her on Naboo and then tattooing when they leave um so she's left Jar Jar in charge to you know act as her representative and I I think I pointed out in the article that you know as as much of a bad reputation as Jar Jar has he's more than likely spent a lot of time learning politics with Padme she wouldn't just be leaving you know a uh, a stupid person in charge, and Jar Jar knows—you know—kind of knows what he's doing. At least he's familiar with the uh, actions of the Senate. So they realize uh, they, being Palpatine and Amita, realize that with her gone, and she was—you know—one of the biggest oppositions to giving the the, uh, the clone army being legalized. So when she's on the run, Jar Jar's in charge, and they realize that with her gone, they have the chance to kind of sidestep their biggest opposition. So. When they're, um, I believe the Jedi are kind of reporting their, oh, it's when Obi Wan reports, oh, there's a, a droid army on Geonosis, there's a really big issue. Things get very dire in that moment. So, Jar Jar being in that room sees that, oh, wow, there is a looming threat. And when they drop these kind of like very subtle hints, uh, I believe the lines were, um, where Massimilis says, this is a crisis, the Senate must vote, the Chancellor of Emergency Powers, he can then approve the creation of an army. And Palpatine, very tower is.
1: But what senator would have the courage to promote such a radical act? Or yeah, cle- a radical clearly, act? they've been thinking about this moment for quite some time. I Absolutely. mean, in politics, you know, they, timing is everything. And for them, like, this was the moment that they've clearly been looking at. If we if we believe them to be conspirators in unraveling the democracy of the republic and going towards an empire.
2: Yeah, and this really is kind of that pivotal moment, because we see even very early on in episode one, cities is like... I will make it legal. He realizes to secure his power with, you know, not just power in the force, but power in, across the galaxy, mm-hmm. he needs to have legal rights, if you will, to yeah. do things. Because if he sidesteps the law, then the Jedi or whoever the Republic's police force would be for that type of thing, they can say, wait, you've done a lot of things wrong. You get to lose your power. The senators would not be happy about him breaking the rules. But as he gets the emergency powers, as he does everything, uh, we see it in the Clone Wars too. He calls for action. To you know, I think he's in charge of the banking at one point during the Clone Wars.
1: Yes. So he has the permission. You know, make these giant radical changes, and nobody's going to blink an eye. And we see in so some it- of the deleted scenes in Episode Three. Um, you know, you've got. Mon Mothma, Bail Organa, and some of the uh, the early formations of the rebellion, talking about amendments to the Constitution and reigning in of the uh, of the Republic's Constitution, which we don't know much about, but we can assume that they are in hiding from people like Palpatine and Masamita, um, while they are walking back little bits of democracy.
2: Yeah, correct. And uh, it's one of the things that they're not going to give back that power once again. It's been that it's been Palpatine's plan from the very beginning. And Masamita, if he had been in on it since before Valorum lost power, he's been in on it at this point for a uh, minimum 11, 12 years. I mean, it's 10 years between Episodes 1 and 2. So if they've been working together for a period beforehand, now they've been working for at least 10, 11 years really securing all that stuff. So this moment when they need to legalize the clone army is so pivotal because if he can't legalize this action, it really slows down his plans. I don't think it would, you know, destroy his plans. He would find another way to get it to happen. But he's very, you know, particular about his timetable. But when you look at it, these movies take place within the course of a couple days, essentially, at least the prequels. So he plans for 10 years, eventually I'm going to need this clone army, which he had Dooku produce 10 years prior, knowing there's going to be this one moment where he needs to take legal power over it. So he's trusting Masamita with his 10-year plan and knowing that they need to manipulate the right person. They can't say, hey, wait, here's Jar Jar, let's, you know, they can't whisper that to each other. So Masamita not only has to be in on the plan, but Palpatine (coughs) needs to realize he can't do it by himself. He needs somebody else that's willing to, you know love that softball for Jar Jar to swing
1: at. Oh, totally. I think what's so cool about Masamita is that he is this, you know, like we've, we've been saying, this longtime conspirator, but there's another person on the staff. I mean, they work with this, uh, this female um, Umbaran by the name of Sly Moore, you know, that, that really creepy lady with I the. Love that name. Oh, Sly, Sly Moore, <laughs> more Sly. I mean, she, I like, just kind of looking at Palpatine's staff and his inner circle, I mean, these are intimidating figures, and Sly Moore, I, I, my understanding of Shamba- of Umbarans is that they have the ability to influence people almost mentally or psychically. Um, I mean, I can't imagine what it must have been like to work legislatively against these people.
2: Watching the three of them walk in the room together, you're just
1: like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Here come the bad guys. Talk about like a this- clique. Yeah. I mean, if you think about visually, he surrounded himself with people that are so intimidating.
2: And then he's just this gentle old man that has this smile that you're like, you know what? He might be in charge, but he looks like he's nice. He probably has like a butterscotch or something.
1: We have these these politicians on the Hill here in real world politics, you know, who they, they have to be to a certain extent outwardly facing nice and likable. Um, that's not really the case with all of them. But I mean, you've got cunning political Um, operatives who work behind the scenes to make sure that politicians' agendas are going through properly. Um, I don't know if you ever... Did you ever watch House of Cards?
2: You know, I I binge-watched that series, um, and it's funny because I've heard it was good, but I'm going to admit publicly that I've been in love with Nev Campbell since I was like 11. <laughs> and when I found out she was going to be on season four, I'm like, well, if I'm going to watch season four, I might as well catch up on seasons one through three. And then I got addicted to it. So I was like, oh, okay, it's also a good show. And then Campbell yeah,
1: you, Nev Campbell's on. Yeah, I told you. Nev Campbell's amazing. Um, I mean, but like, th- I think the best way to think about masa and like anything he would have done in the Republic would have been like Doug Stamper in House of Cards. You know, the lunatic who works for Kevin Spacey in the show. Absolutely. Gets all of his yeah, dirty man. work done. And basically twists people's wrists to go along with certain ideas. Yeah, he definitely has that kind of. Uh, while Palpatine's busy, you know, out there kissing babies and waving around, I could obviously imagine him pushing a senator to a dark room and giving him a couple punches and being like, you know, you better vote our way or else. Well, I imagine back in uh, back in the Republic, most of the way that they would deal with these things would be economic sanctions and you know threats of blockades for your homeworld, and you won't get this product or you won't get this trade route and. You know, it's really just all of that sort of basic dealing that determines how deals are made. Yeah, you th- if you think about it, they, uh, it's kind of brilliant for Palpatine
2: to blockade his own planet, essentially, causing that sympathy because if other planets beforehand had been blockaded by the Federation or by somebody else and they were devastated, what better way to get that sympathy vote than to be like, oh, my planet will die if we don't fix this immediately.
0: Um, I think the most interesting thing about Masameda is he seems to have known Palpatine was a Sith and he almost seems to not even be shaken by like in uh, in episode three when yoda comes in and palpatine shocks him with lightning masamira just walks out like nothing just happened
2: yeah it looks like he's kind of like i've got better things to do than to watch this action <laughs> like i'm pretty sure somebody needs advising at this point yeah it's great to see that you know as the audience are like oh my god force lightning lightsabers and he's just like Ugh, eh. boring
0: not impressive <laughs> he's like i've seen this before <laughs> Regular like, is really day.
2: not my thing. I'm just going to go walk out. It's like, he walks by the poor Imperial guards, which are like knocked out on the floor. He's like, I don't even care about these guys. I'm, I'm hungry. I need a sandwich.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it kind of seems like, just in reading some new canon and, and extra material, that he's almost kind of like the propaganda spin master for the Emperor uh, in the later yeah. years.
2: Now it's, it's interesting, because within the new canon, they've established that Palpatine very much keeps to himself to a degree, and he only shows up publicly you know for events kind of like you know in rebels we had empire day uh, i think they said that the uh, minister or uh, governor price was on course to celebrate with the emperor for empire day so he doesn't really show up and do much uh, uh, he does a lot behind the scenes but he's never public and i think they also mentioned in the aftermath books that there might have been like body doubles yeah. so he really does not expose himself
1: yeah, they mentioned the idea of body doubles in it was uh, Lost Stars. Uh Lost Stars and then in Tarkin, uh was that, you know, Masamida had been had been orchestrating, you know, flyovers of the um of the Emperor's like taxi, you know, so that people thought that he was out and about Coruscant actually doing things, like going to yeah. theater like he used to.
2: Yeah, so They've got that. He's kind of in charge of I think, that. That perception of the emperor, and you know, I'm sure they would kind of portray him as you know, he probably suffers from that vicious Jedi attack 20 years ago. So they need to, you know, yeah. They need to get him out there. Like he's he's fighting for the people, even though it's hard. He's still out there trying to be your good emperor and you know serve
1: you properly. He is scarred so and
0: deformed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I give you a six out of ten for that. Six impression. out of ten on the
1: impression. <laughs> But, I mean, he has a title, so he is Grand Vizier of the Imperial Ruling Council. And so the Imperial Ruling Council is this thing still cloaked in, in a whole lot of mystery with with old and new canon. You know, these, I guess, like the bureaucrats who are actually running the day-to-day business of the Empire. Because you really think about the Empire being led by the Moffs and Vader and a lot of the stooges who you see in the boardroom in, the, in Episode 4 on the Death Star. But in truth, I mean, those guys all answer to the bureaucrats of the ruling council, and they answer to Um, Masamita. He is the most powerful guy in the galaxy besides Palpatine. It's amazing.
2: Yeah, it's great because there's that that scene in the Tarkin novel when uh, I don't believe – I read it probably the first week it came out, so I don't believe Tarkin's Grand Moff Tarkin yet, but he's Moff Tarkin. And he's definitely got a lot of that power. He's in charge of the Outer Rim. He's overseeing the Death Star Project to a degree. I, I think in Rogue One we're going to see that somebody else is literally in charge of the Death Star Project. But it looks like Tarkin is still, like, that guy's boss. Um, but when they're in that room, this is during a meeting where Palpatine actually kind of makes an appearance. But he's, like, literally lording above all the Imperials. And is the one controlling the floor. And we see that when Tarkin walks into the room, Masamida's standing next to Vader... And so he goes to join them because he kind of realizes, stand next to the power in the room, he's Tarkin. He knows what he's doing. And everybody needs to kind of get approval for their jobs, including Tarkin. Tarkin can't just be like, well, I'm going to do this because I'm grandma Tarkin. Mm-hmm. He needs to make sure his projects get approved. And to do that, he has to go through Masamita. Everybody has to answer to Masamita. So when I say that he's the second most powerful person in the empire, it's that Masamita is in charge of everybody else, and that essentially includes vader and i know when i've told some people that vader doesn't have that much power within the empire they're kind of shocked because you know it's darth vader we see him in the movies as being the most frightening villain until Palpatine shows up in jedi but how they've established him in the new canon is that he's essentially an attack dog that's on a leash until he's loaned out to whoever needs him He gets uh, sent to go work with Tarkin in the Tarkin book. It's not kind of his idea. He's not happy to be working with Tarkin, but I don't think Vader's happy to work with anybody. Vader probably would want to go off and do his own thing, but Palpatine holds that leash. Even Leia says, oh, now we know who's holding your leash. It's Grandmoth Tarkin.
1: Yeah, the perception of Vader over the course of time is really, I don't know, I guess like diminished. I mean, he does not serve any sort of leadership role, he is a mystery to some people. Lots of folks don't even know he really exists.
0: I I think it is interesting that Masameta is in this role, because most people, if you say it, and and, uh, you had actually mentioned this in your article, um, saying that if you say Masameta, to most casual fans, they're like, what? What is that? Um, So I think it is interesting that he has this much power, and most people don't even know about it.
1: What does it say about the Empire that we have now another alien in leadership in the empire, when apparently their rule is humans only, like I thought that was supposed to be a, a central tenet of imperial leadership, uh, but we see it being thwarted with Thrawn and then again with Masamida. I mean, I guess it makes me feel like they really don't care about anything on that higher level. They just do it for for keeping order. I don't well, know. You know if, you,
2: if you think about the people that you know, you got Mas Amida and you got Thrawn, and you look at what they've done. I mean, obviously we don't know until next weekend the Starwin and then the canon story mm-hmm. what Ron does, but we definitely get the impression he's gonna be very similar to the books, which means he is the biggest tactical tactical genius in the Empire. So Palpatine isn't stupid. If he knows somebody has value, he'll use it appropriately. Mm-hmm. So he has learned over at this point now, by the time a new hope rolls around, thirty plus years working side by side with Masamida. And Masamita, from what we can tell, has never tried to betray him. Has never tried to take that power. Mm-hmm. Also, he realized that he's a Sith. If you try and betray the Sith Lord, you're probably going to end up crispy on the ground. So he's not <laughs> going to take that step.
1: But, you know, it's better to be the second most powerful person in the galaxy instead of try to be number one and then be dead. Have you read the latest Aftermath book, Life Debt?
2: Unfortunately.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that concludes uh, our review. And Aftermath that concludes yeah. I really, I really like,
2: I mean, I'm the type of guy that it's very hard for me to find the Star Wars I don't like. And I say, unfortunately, because somebody had messaged me, <clears throat> they had one of the advanced reader copies, and they messaged me the day before it came out, and they're like, you need to read this book as soon as possible, Masamita's oh, oh, in it. Do I? And I was like, oh, I can't wait, this is great, because people were already talking the day before, they're like, oh, it looks like there might be some Snoke stuff, and I'm like, is Masamita Snoke? Best theory I've heard like, yet. Well, I was like, there has to be some importance. And then I read, I remember, because I bought it, that day, I was on the road for business, and I actually stayed up to like, 2 a.m. to read it, but I read the first section where it's, like, they start describing, you know, him walking across this, like, beach glory scene. I'm just like, yeah, he's going to start negotiating with Leia and Mon Mothma, and this is going to be him, like, putting his foot down be like, the Empire will not kneel. Walks up, like, hands out, he's just like, arrest me. I'm like, damn it.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I thought it was a, um, it was an interesting moment for his character because... I was listening to the audiobook, and so, first of all, like the narration of it can really ruin those moments if it's not done right. I mean, but he he definitely came across as a sniveling coward. Um and but again, that has to be that has to be accurate to a certain extent. I mean, people like him, and I also am kind of thinking about, I don't know, Nazi generals. I mean, do you really think that they were that brave and, and and principled of people or just evil cowards who were protected by power and then when it all fell apart, they would do about anything to to escape with their heads? Um, yeah, the
2: schemers aren't necessarily the brave ones. So, I mean, he's been a schemer. He's been behind-the-scenes schemer. He never had to deal with that burden of true power. And the second, you know, he would essentially would have been in charge based on, you know, power structure... Nobody trusted him because they all realized, hey, this is my chance. This guy, no big deal. We'll just sidestep him. We'll take it. I mean, I blame Palpatine because Palpatine probably never thought he'd die, never left like in case of my death. As unlikely as it may be, I want Masamida to rule the empire. He probably never left the plan in place. And even if he did, it probably wouldn't have mattered anyway.
1: No, definitely not. And that's basically the amount of prowess that he had. When everything fell apart, it was obvious who would be in charge. It would be him. Because he has the, I guess, like his arms around the bureaucracy and all the people on Coruscant. And that is the home of the empire. So you basically have all the military groups branching off forming their own version of the Empire. But the Empire is not the military. The Empire is its bureaucracy and its its arms of government. Um, and that is what Masa Media has his control of. So, I mean, the, the ability to surrender the Empire is his alone. And my understanding is that you know, Leia and my mothma they reject his offer and they yeah, send they send him back.
2: Like that scene was just kind of heartbreaking. I mean, a lot of people are just like, it's really sad at the end when Chu <clears throat> and Han, you know, go separate ways. I'm like, I'm the only dude that was heartbroken with me to like showed that he was, you know, completely essentially pointless to the Empire at that point. And then you know that next scene, because he's only in the book for two scenes, and then that next scene, he's like, I'm gonna take the elevator up to my office and I'm gonna jump out the window. And I'm just yeah. like damn it, Chuck Wendig, like, you are <laughs> killing me here. I'm like, I been on this character for a year. It's like, this is my guy. Like, this is the one I believe is going to be important. He's in two where he surrenders, and then tries to kill himself. I'm like, damn it, man.
1: But I I gotta fault. say, I think that that is, um, a, I think, I did not like that book very much, but I thought that that arc for him was appropriate. I mean, what else does a guy like him do? And this kind of goes back to the Nazi analogy again, like, but bite the cyanide pill. You know, like, what, what do you do? He has no future besides jumping off the balcony. I think that's an appropriate end to him, and and we didn't actually get it. No, I'm hoping that in uh, the last novel, his plan is to steal a star destroyer and,
2: like, crash it into, like, <laughs> Jakku or something. And be like, i go out on a blaze of glory or, like, taking this apod and be like, I'm just going to go hang out over here. And then Paul he'll eventually end up, like, on Hosnium Prime, like, in hiding so 30 years from now, he's like, what's that bright red light? Oh, damn. So damn. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it makes sense for him to be a coward, but since I love the character, I'm just like, that hurts my heart.
0: <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll write a personal email to Chuck day and say, hey, look, my friend Mike, he really wants a better ending. You're going to need to rewrite the book. I'm sure he'll, he'll comply. I may
2: or may not have got on Twitter like the moment I read that scene. I'm like, <laughs> damn it, Chuck, what are you doing, man? And at the time, my avatar on Twitter was a Masamita photo.
1: You're the you are the hipster of the Star Wars world. Have you ever heard of this character? He's my favorite. You, you probably don't... haven't. Yeah.
2: Essentially not. Like you don't know. You like you might even notice him, but it's really
1: cool. A <laughs> lot <laughs> of people and don't know until this he got popular.
2: You guys did. Chuck Wendig ruined it.
0: <laughs> so so this has definitely been an interesting and informative conversation, to say the least. But uh, is there any final thoughts that either of you had uh, about Masamita and, and his uh, interesting and convoluted career?
2: You know, I think it's um he's a good representation for showing that Palpatine in his manipulations was able to trust people. And it also kind of shows that level of uh, sway he holds over, you know, guys like Vader, even Tarkin. Like, Tarkin's a smart guy, but he's still controlled by Palpatine. So these, you know, top names that Star Wars fans know, they really have to bow down. But Palpatine is willing to share the power. Not, you know, not share, you know, control, but he's willing to, Trust other people essentially. So when you see that blue guy in the background, just kind of realize that he's got that inner smile, kind of like, yeah, I know what we're doing, even though he stands there all stoic and yelling, "Order, order!" Yeah, <laughs> and he, he's a good representation that there are definitely other characters in the Star Star Wars universe that definitely appear minor, which really do play a bigger role. And that's kind of what my podcast is about, and the articles I'm going to be writing is there's objects, events, people. That really kind of fill in these gaps and move the subplots which drive the main action so he's just kind of he's my favorite representation because you know like you said i'm a hipster for him i've been in on his train for a long time
1: um, <laughs> when he was just playing clubs and you know <laughs> little dive bars yeah.
2: so he kind of helped open my eyes to kind of like that richer story so now when i'm watching star wars you know, i'm watching rebels especially because it's new i'm reading the comics I know that they're not going to introduce any character without some sort of degree of importance that, you know, stands next to somebody like Palpatine. You don't get next to Palpatine unless there's a reason.
0: So no character in star Wars is a throwaway unless it's a random stormtrooper that can't shoot. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, before you go, where can people find you uh, in, in your podcast?
2: Well, thank you guys for having me on. They can find me on Twitter at, um, at the force. You can, um, find me on makingstarwars.net now every Wednesday. That's where my weekly column, You Seek Knowledge, is going to be. You can find me on iTunes or on SoundCloud under You Seek Knowledge, where it's going to be um, my weekly podcast, which is probably going to cover a lot of the weekly Making Star Wars stuff. That, that The articles are going to kind of really focus what I talk about on the podcast. And then eventually try and find me on iTunes again under Live the Force. That's where I'm going to have my original radio drama stuff. Just something original Star Wars stories nothing i don't make money so please don't sue me lucasfilm
0: and disney <laughs> <laughs> well you it here first please don't sue our friend mike thanks again for being on the
2: show man hey thank you guys very much thanks mike it. it was a pleasure
1: <sighs> just for a special little segment for y'all this week um as we all know it's an election year politics is everywhere and politics also made its way to dragon con down in georgia this past week Um, We got to see so many cool pictures and videos and hear a lot of great panel audio that's come out since the con. And so we heard from one of our listeners, John Liang, that he was going to be participating in a panel on the military and politics of Star Wars. Uh, He was sitting on this with um, Riley Blanton of the Star Wars Report, and they went over a whole lot of great content. So I had a quick phone call. With John after the con was concluded, and was asking a little bit about his experience on the panel, so we just wanted to share that with y'all. Yeah, well right now we're joining John Liang, a fan and listener of the show, and he just got back from Dragon Con 2016. John, how was your trip?
3: It was awesome. It was amazing. It was my second Dragon Con, um, first time actually of being on a panel, and it's everything you could ever want a, a fan convention to be like. Because you've got, you know, mainly I was kind of. Uh, mainline the Star Wars track, but if you're interested in, you know, Star Trek, uh, Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, Farscape, any, you know, you know, any kind of fantasy, sci-fi, whatever, you can think of science, just basic space science. Um, if you're a skeptic of any kind of religion, you, you can do that. You can do a writer's track where you just basically
2: talk to a bunch of different authors, and they'll give you advice on how to write. It's, I think there's 30 different tracks, at least 30 different tracks, of all sorts of different things you can uh, you can look into and, and, and plug into.
1: Now, what kind of panel were you on, John?
3: Um, I was on the military and politics Star Wars military and pol- politics panel. Um, there were four other panelists with me: uh, Riley and Bethany Belanton from the Star Wars war- report were there. Um, Tom Hutchins, who is a the uh, from the Mandalorian Mercs, was there. Um,
1: Isn't Tom uh, Mandalore himself?
3: Yes, exactly. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> much that's it. Yeah, exactly. Thomas Harper was moderating it. Um, he's a, a, a Army JAG lawyer. And Janine Spendlove, who is a Marine Corps a C-130 pilot, and also wrote a short story that was featured in Star Wars Insider and is in the, it's now in the paperback version of, Battlefront, of the Battlefront. Oh, Front sweet. Yep. Well,
1: well, John, tell me a little bit briefly about, I mean, how you got connected to the panel and basically what you were bringing to the table, like what line of expertise did you have to bring there?
3: The cool thing about that is that if you get plugged in, once you start, like, following, you know, the Star Wars at Dragon Con Twitter handle, you start following them at, the, at some point, I think, three months ago? They put out a notice saying, "Hey, um, panel ideas are out. If you want to apply to them, here's where we're. Here's the, the things we're looking at. Um, take a look, and you know, send us an email." And one of the panel uh, ideas that they had was for uh, military and politics in Star Wars. And so I figured, well, I must, I've been a Star Wars fan ever since I first watched the movie back in 1978 when I was or 77 when I was eight years old. Um, and I've been covering the military as a journalist for the last 19 years. I've been a journalist for over 20 years now. I figured I could, you know, bring, you know, the politics and the military and also my love for Star Wars into that panel. And so I, I sent in my email and, with, you know, my qualifications kind of thing. And uh, Brandy, the, the track director, wrote me back and said, hey, it sounds great. Come on, you know, you're part of it. <laughs> so we'll let you know, you know, when, well, on what day the panel is going to take place. It took place yesterday. At 5:30, uh, and uh, from there we went from there, and so then after that, uh, Tom Harper sent out an email once we all once we they, they settled on who was going to be on the panel, and sent us up like a bunch of like main you know idea, you know discussion topics, uh, which yeah. is what we we started out with, and we didn't get to all the discussion topics because but we did get to good uh, maybe two thirds of them. Like you know, one well, of the first one was like you know, the Force Awakens, and all like you know why why do they have why would the in the first order build basically was essentially like another death star um and then the second one was like you know post return of the jedi and then talking about you know aftermath life debt bloodline all the politics in those books and how they came out
1: my new Wars. my yeah. new favorite thing are those those books and the politics they provide Ugh.
3: we seriously we literally like you know kermit flailed fangirl flailed depending on what your gender was about all of Claudia Grey like you would not believe.
1: Well John, thanks so much for taking the time to call me and for like all your support of the show. I've really enjoyed just chatting with you online and getting to know you a little bit and all of your feedback for the podcast. It's meant a lot.
3: It's been my pleasure. You guys are great. It's it's great to have finally have like a, a dedicated, you know, politics of Star Wars like inside the beltway Memphis, uh, <laughs> kind of, you know, things. You, you just don't get it it's it's a unique idea that uh you'd think would have
1: been already done and it clearly hasn't and it's it's really kind of cool that people are are, you folks are actually getting are doing this excellent all right we'll see you soon john all right take care okay bye-bye
0: if you guys want to get connected with john you can follow him on twitter at juan john jedi next we have a listener email from colby fox i have a question i'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on in bloodline who did Leia represent in the senate Alderaan was long gone. Conceivably, she could have represented the planetary sector, but what would the other still actual planets feel about her representation?
1: Yeah, so this is a really great question. Um, I, it's kind of a two-parter, so I'll try to cover it in, in, in both. But um, Leia represents, in, in the New Republic, the Alderan system, um, part of the actual galactic core systems. And Alderaan was destroyed, but its moons um, and other planets in it still exist. And Alderanian people still exist, the ones that were not on the planet during its destruction. Uh, Their customs, their culture, political philosophies, they all still exist. And Leia is part of that cultural preservation. Um, She sort of represents, I mean, really the lasting cultural impact of Alderaan. An additional part of that story is the world of Byron, settled by Alderanians and Arkansians. Um, you might remember Lady Carice Sindian from the Bloodline book. She's a centrist senator who is very much opposed uh, to Leia, but sort of pretends to be a friend uh, in the New Republic. And she becomes the governor of the world of Byron after Leia refuses the mantle uh, that she was given because of her, her heritage. She was first in line after Lord Mellowin of Byron died uh, because Byron was... ...jointly settled by these two different worlds. So Lady Carisindian and Leia both kind of have claim to this world, but Alderaan, uh, I believe, in this situation comes first. Um, it's really unclear to me what moons and planets still make up the Alderan system. I could not find any of that knowledge in Wikipedia... Um, So if anyone knows anything, please let us know. But Leia really does represent all of the displaced Alderanians, which in my mind are a very martyred group of people whose physical location is less clear and less important uh, to me than kind of what they represent as a group that was um, nearly completely wiped out by the Empire in Episode 4. I have not read it yet, um, but Marvel's Princess Leia comics covers her mission to find and then and save all the survivors of Alderaan um, so I would recommend Colby that you go check that out uh, might be a worthwhile read to answering some of your questions about what is the culture of Alderan after the planet's destruction and what connection does Leia have to that existing group
0: All right, well, thank you, Kobe Fox, so much for sending in that question. Again, if you guys have any other questions you'd like to send us in for the show, we will read them on the show. Uh, Feel free to email us at beltwaybanthas at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us uh, at beltwaybanthas on Twitter. But that really brings us towards the end of the show. But before we exit today, we, of course, will have our segment of Bantha Fodder. So, Stephen? What's your band the fodder for the week?
1: Yeah, so I came across a really awesome fan by the name of James Floyd on Twitter. And he does this thing, um, hashtag wear Star Wars every day. Uh, it's connected to charity, and, and he does exactly what it says. He wears Star Wars uh, merchandise in some form on himself every day. Um, and he's coming up on nine months of doing this. And James is connected with a number of podcasts, including Coffee with Kenobi, Skywalking Through Neverland, to talk about his efforts. Um, with wear Star Wars every day to support the Collateral Repair Project. This is a nonprofit that does assistance education and support for urban refugees in Amman, Jordan. Um, really, just speaking to the big heart that the Star Wars fan community has um, for for helping others and just making a difference in the world. Um, Coffee with Kenobi has put forward a challenge to their listeners to turn Force Friday into a Force for Good. Um, This is September 30th. This is when there's going to be a huge drop of uh, merchandise for Rogue One and new Star Wars memorabilia um, in stores, I think, particularly in Target, if anyone had seen the new um, Target Star Wars ad. Um, And I would like to get Beltway Banthas in on this and stand with James in support of this cause. Uh, The Collateral Repair Project is a certified nonprofit. Um, They've got a great rating, and, and you can feel free to check them out a little bit before getting involved. But I would like to engage in a little healthy competition with Coffee with Kenobi and show that we've got the best, most socially conscious listeners who want to make a difference in the world. Coffee with Kenobi has set an ambitious goal of raising $500 from Coffee with Kenobi listeners, and I want us to top that. So, um... I know we've got a really great um, great base of listeners and folks who really care about the world, and I think that's why you're listening to a Politics and Star Wars podcast in the first place. So if you would, go to our Twitter, and I'm going to tag this to the top of our Twitter, um, our Twitter timeline. Uh, there's a GoFundMe page for this project. It is GoFundMe.com slash wars 2016 That's GoFundMe.com slash wars 2016 And you can learn all about this project, and you can give there. And in your donation, just mention that you're a Beltway Banthas listener, and that's how you heard about the project. And we're going to uh, to go head-to-head with Coffee with Kenobi on this and, uh, and make a good change and be a force for good in the world. So... That's my Bantha fodder. Um, I'm excited about this. And besides going out and buying a couple new toys and uh, new pieces of clothing on September 30th, uh, also going to make sure that we are giving back and doing so with the Collateral Repair Project. So, Tirso, what's your Bantha fodder for the week, man? Well, for me, as I usually do, I like to
0: hop on the last possible train to get to, to, you know, like popular things that are going on, mostly because I just sometimes I'm just not paying attention. Uh, I know a lot of people had been mentioning Stranger Things as being like the best Netflix show to ever happen. Uh, They had mentioned it and mentioned it for for weeks on end. Um, And even Jillian, uh, my fiance, she was kind of egging me on to to watch the show. I I wasn't at all like disinterested. I just ultimately never found the time or made the time to do it. So I finally watched the show. I, I finished the show and I was actually, you know, extremely impressed for my own reasons i as as a writer and a person that creates i was so impressed by the writing of this show and, and i just wanted to seriously talk about it because i was so fascinated by the way they took different protagonists and had me follow each of them in their own stories that met up at the end um and you know not i'm sure everyone's seen it but me at this point but i was just fascinated um and just genuinely um you know pleasantly surprised by how amazing this was and um it's it's one of those things that I aspire to be able to write the way that the different writers for the different episodes did because um, it was definitely a collaborative process. You had different writers on different episodes, but um, it was seriously something that like genuinely inspired me. I was like, wow, like they like really did an amazing job with just producing this show, um, not only making it entertaining but just left me wanting, you know, more. And I know that there's going to be a season two and things like that. But it was just something that I I really enjoyed Um, and really wanted to just praise the people who worked really hard to write it and and make it work. Uh, Because when you create something and you write something, sometimes it's difficult to, you know, have it start perfectly and end perfectly. And since breaking bad i don't think i've seen a show that's done a beginning middle and end as well as they did Mm -hmm. Uh, so i I was just pleasantly surprised by that but that's pretty much all i have i don't really have anything else i'm I'm always working on new content and things i can put out on youtube Uh, and you guys can find that on youtube at Tirso perez Uh, and you can follow me on twitter Uh, it's just Tirso, and on instagram steven where can they find you
1: yeah, you can connect with me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N underscore K-E-N-T-89. Um, I'm on Instagram at uh, Stephen of Kent. And you can connect with Beltway Banthas on Instagram as well at Beltway Banthas Podcast.
0: Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Remember, as always, to leave a review on iTunes. And as always, may the Force be with you. Amita, oh. not Fuzzball.